The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Ma'am. If I were arrested, would you send me flowers? (laughs) um, I've missed this story. I have no idea what you are referencing. You totally missed it. Okay, I'm going to read you a little bit from the the Herald, one of my favourite newspapers. Speaking to reporters in Holyrood, Keith Brown, the party's deputy editor, that'll be the SNP, said it was an expression of the group's support for their ex-leader, given what she has been through over recent days. Yes, Nicola Sturgeon's colleagues are sending her flowers because she's been arrested. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that, that anymore. I just wanted to know from you, if I were arrested, I'd obviously be completely innocent. But if I were arrested, would you send me flowers? I mean, certainly would send you a get out of jail soon card. <laughs> Excellent. And if my mortgage rate went up to 6%, would you send me flowers? I suppose you wouldn't be able to afford it because your mortgage rate would go up to 6% exactly. as well. I just had to refinance my mortgage earlier this year and... Even though my interest rate doubled, I now feel relieved because mm. uh, it's gone up by about another uh, half a percentage point at least since then. How long did so you fix for, John? I fixed for five years, but that's because okay, I'm not I'm sending quite you flowers then. <laughs> now, listen, this is really important, though. I mean, this is really important. There was a time, we've talked about this several times already, there was a period when everyone thought that Bank of England uh, rates would peak at 4%. That is, that that ship has long, long sailed. It's not 4%, not 4.5, not 5, not 5.5. It might be 6. Yes, and that's quite uh, scary, really. Um, and also, I mean, I've got to admit, it's higher than actually even I would have thought. Um, and, you know, me and you have thought inflation was going to be a problem for a long time. Um, but I, I mean, if I'm being honest, the main reason I would have thought the Bank of England rate can't get to 6% is because I would have thought that the economy would have collapsed a long time before that. And that kind of resilience has also been somewhat but remember surprising. how long it takes. I mean, everyone yeah. keeps forgetting, you know, it takes a year to 18 months for interest rate rises to feed through it takes longer when a lot of debt is fixed which it is so that the economy has not collapsed it should not be a surprise yeah um i think that's a good point uh although then you sort of think so are we just going to get what usually happens where they raise rates a bit too far and then they kind of push everything over a cliff Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. But don't you think? I mean, we have a we have a Bank of England that is um, it's a conversation for another time. But next week we might talk about whether the Bank of England really should be independent or not. Has independent led to a really intense outbreak of groupthink that has brought us to where we are? Bank of England did not raise rates fast enough at the beginning, kept them low for far too long, totally failed to normalise. And now is caught up in a position where they have to prove that they're like super macho to get to the other side of it. So uh, it's almost inevitable that they will go too far. I mean, I think that is true. I think by now they're politically so embarrassed um, about having been caught in that happen. So they will keep pushing up rates regardless of whether it looks like things are cooling down or not. Um, and I mean, whether or not that would be the case if they weren't technically independent anymore I still think independence is a sort of something that just came about because of the nature of the backdrop the economic backdrop mm, mm. Um, but they would be more accountable I suppose if you have to think harder about the electorate then maybe you would make better decisions yeah because a lot of people are going to suffer an enormous amount of financial pain as a direct result of that well yeah this is the other thing what I do I am wondering about 
uh, pay rises and how much that will go to offsetting this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things is that obviously there's a slightly the portion of the population that's been able to afford a house certainly in the last five years or so has been the better off and um, an awful lot of people now own their properties outright that didn't before. Um, and I think where the real weak point in the market is just now, which is not necessarily you know such a bad thing, is the buy-to-let market. I mean, I do actually genuinely feel quite sorry for people who you know, bought properties in good faith and now... So you, know, you should. You know, you know I mean, they can't. I, I do think that... I, I can see why George Osborne changed the tax allowances, but at the end of the day, a mortgage interest is a business cost, and it's treated as a kind of cost, business cost for any other type of business. Um, and if you decide to make an exception for buy-to-let landlords because they're suddenly politically unpopular, then that's fundamentally quite unfair. Um, We're going to miss them when they're gone, like, aren't we? I mean, I mean, <laughs> you need landlords. Um, my own experience and second-hand experiences of the rental market is that it could do with being regulated a lot more yeah. aggressively. Um, Alert, on, John Stepek argues for more regulation. <laughs> Someone write that down. Certainly uh, in terms of the quality rather than the the uh, you know the sorts of stuff that is allowed to be done uh, to and around tenants. Yeah, right. We need to stop anyway. talking. We can't talk anymore. <laughs> I don't no, know why we can't I talk know. anymore. It's because um, we've got a really uh, excellent and quite long interview this week. I just want to finish talking to you, John, by saying I'm glad you're going to send me flowers if I'm arrested. Of course. Um, and uh, for now, maybe we should just send some flowers to the Bank of England. <laughs> <laughs> or send them to jail. Cut that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Ed Conway, economics editor of Sky News, and he joined me to discuss his new book out this very week. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. We hugely appreciate it. Thank you. It's exciting. Now, you have written possibly one of the most interesting books I have read in a really, really long time. You have no idea, and, and listeners, I'm looking for sympathy here, you have no idea how many nonfiction books pass my desk. I'm, <laughs> God, most of them are boring, so boring. And most of them I read the introduction, I read the conclusion, I pretend I've read the whole thing. It's almost <laughs> never true. But on this occasion, I've had this book for less than 24 hours, and I've read, I would say, a good half of it already, and the rest I'll be reading the second. Ed and I stop talking. It's absolutely brilliant. So before we go any further... It's called Material World, A Substantial Story of Our Past and Future by Ed Conway. Go out, buy it right now. You can't get it physically in America until November, but you can get it physically in the UK and Europe now. And of course, you can probably get it on a Kindle in the US. Go out and buy it. You will learn a lot. Now, Ed, the first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about this distinction that you make in the introduction when you talk about the difference between the ethereal world and the material world and how shocking it was to you to find that you had been inadvertently living in only one of them for the majority of your life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so, so it kind of started, you know, I'm a journalist. I, I live, I, I, I had this idea of this ethereal world that, we're, that many of us live in doing kind of service sector jobs where we, we're using our brain power and, and we're all told, aren't we, uh, repeatedly, that that is the kind of apogee of, of human achievements, you know, to use your brain. And really all you need is, is a good idea make an app and then you can change the world and that that feels like part of the the story that we've been told over the last kind of 10 20 years or so and you know to a great to a, if you extend it further things like finance you know you and I know a lot of people who work in finance it is ultimately kind of financial intermediation it's not necessarily kind of making stuff and i i had this kind of profound experience not that it's not important i should say i mean it's incredibly important but this is to to make a distinction with this this other world I went out to uh, this gold mine in, in Nevada a few years ago, and I was filming a piece for, for Sky News about Brexit. But the thing that really stayed with me, staring at this mine, was just how much of this mountain, it was this enormous mountain, they were tearing down in order to get a really tiny amount of gold. It, it took about um, 10 jumbo jets, so 10 A380s worth of ore to get one gold bar. So the scale of... Uh, exploitation of what you need to do to, to the earth to get what you need was just kind of way beyond what I kind of expected. It was just staggering. And so from that, I kind of found myself thinking, well, hang on, 
what do we need to do if that's what we need to do get a, to get a bar of gold what do we need to do to get the stuff that we really need because obviously you know gold we need in certain respects but you know we're not going to literally kind of drop down dead if we don't have gold whereas if we don't get you know fertilizer if you don't have steel if you don't have concrete um if you don't have copper to electrify the world then that's a different story and so that kind of set me off down this this other road of trying to explore what the materials are that we really really need and what does it take to kind of get them out of the ground convert them into the things that we use and as i kind of delved deeper into it it just yeah it just struck me that there is this entirely different world where engineering is key where physics is key where science is genuinely not just an abstract term but is actually being applied every day you know you look at kind of what's happening with the manufacture of semiconductors and this felt like you know i call it the material world it felt like a different universe and it felt like an inspiring and exciting place but most of all it just felt unfamiliar and i think that's partly because particularly in the uk but also to some extent the us to some extent some parts of europe we've increasingly outsourced the production of stuff we've outsourced the getting of things from the ground and everything pretty much that we're touching on a daily basis is either grown but for the most part it is mined it comes out of the ground but we just don't do as much of it in this country and as a result we don't think about it that much we don't think about the pragmatic realities of how the world around us actually came to be and it's partly something about you know our lack of awareness in the real world and that lack of awareness i think is is quite important because it's partly because we didn't have to think about this stuff it's partly because we outsourced a lot of it to china that i think we're not as aware of both the challenges so the particular challenges of carbon emissions you know where where does that carbon from come from it comes from everything it comes from pretty much every process you can care to imagine but also the challenges you know there is no sim- single switch we'll ever be able to flick which can suddenly turn out those those carbon emissions. Mm. And the book is a bit of an exploration into both of those sides, you know, how we're actually making stuff, you know, how does a semiconductor get get made and you know, plenty has been written about semiconductors by the way, but I think I am this is the first book which actually goes tells the story of how you make a semiconductor from the quarry all the way through to the fab. Okay, lots lots has been written about fabs, but not so much has been written about how you make polysilicon or how you make silicon metal or how you um, make the actual kind of wafer itself. Um, mm, mm. And that stuff is, that's fascinating. And that's half of the journey of the supply chain before it gets to TSMC or indeed any of those other fabrication plants. Yeah. So partly it's a story of wonder, but partly it's also like, let's just think about the world pragmatically for a change. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm just going to tell um, listeners what are the six materials that, that you focus on. It's sand, salt, iron, copper, oil, and lithium. So we'll we'll talk about a few of those. There is there's a, a lot in what you just said to unpack, and a, there's a, a whole other podcast to be had about how ES, ESG itself relates to the actual material world as opposed to the theoretical material world that most investors live in. I mean, you just said that the mine you went to see the gold mine ticked every box, but was yeah. still a bloody great hole in the ground, destroying yeah. every environmental whatever around it. Right? Say nothing yeah. of the impact it might have on local communities, etc. And I'm I'm guessing I've seen pictures of mines like that that anyone standing there to a mind like that would be amazed to think that it ticked any ESG box at all, or certainly any e-box, although obviously all these things are going to tick S-boxes, and that's very important as well. So if we have time, we'll come back to to ESG, although actually it's all about ESG, isn't it? So let's talk about, because this really is a book, it's a book about energy in lots of ways, isn't it? Because one Mm. of the things that you were saying was it's about turning sand into this and salt into this and iron into this, et cetera. But that turning is a story of energy. So one of the things that I think you touch on in pretty much every chapter along the way in the book is how we are doing something or attempting to do something extraordinary. I suspect we'll fail, but we are attempting to do something extraordinary, which is go through the first ever energy transition that does not involve transitioning to a better and more intense fuel. For the first time, we're trying to transition to a fuel that is effectively, in terms of intensity, worse than the one we're leaving behind. So one of the things that you talk about is that there are a lot of inconvenient truths in here that our attempt to switch to net zero is much more difficult than most people even begin to imagine it will be and possibly impossible. It's a real, I mean, it's, it's an enormous challenge. And I think that's the, the issue is that um, no one doubts the 
importance of of what we are aiming to do you know at the moment what's interesting Marin, i feel like over the past 10 years is that you know that debate about some of the science about what's happening with anthropogenic global warming that seems to have been kind of more or less settled what hasn't really been settled is the solution and how we get there and how much of a compromise there's going to be in order for us to fulfill these goals a lot of governments you know the uk was the first have signed into law acts that say we must get to net zero by a certain time mostly 2050 without really thinking about what that actually involves and and also about how if you get anywhere near it how much do those emissions you have to have have to ask other people to take on for you well, I mean, that's that's what we've done in the UK. You know, we are we are the global champion to some extent in the G7, at least, at reducing our carbon emissions, and we've done that not entirely, but we've done that partly by deindustrializing faster than any other major economy. We just don't make stuff anymore, and that's that yeah. is that's that's a good way of deindustrializing. You know, look at look but at, not but not a good way of growing. It's not a good way of growing, and I think you know, I think, and I, I kind of touch on this a little bit towards the end of the book because again, it's a bit of a, been a bit of a journey for me. And you say, you, you know. As you say, a lot of it's about energy. I didn't really expect at the start of it that it would be so much about energy. But but yes, if you're looking at the conversion of anything, any raw material into something else, then a lot of energy is spent there. That's you know straightforward thermodynamics. And as a result, then you need to think about how you're going to do it differently because right now, carbon emissions are everywhere. I mean, the, a good example of this is to make a to make a silicon chip or or solar panel. You need to take silicon out of the ground but you need to then turn that into a form of metal in order to do that you smelt it so you're smelting it not unlike how you would smelt um iron in a in in an electric arc furnace and in order to smelt it you need coal so in order to make the silicon metal that we make our solar panels out of and our and our silicon chips out of you need coal coking coal right now at least and that is one tiny example of a way in which carbon is kind of integral to pretty much every product you touch on a daily basis. And while there's been plenty of imagination and thought given into how we are going to deal with certain processes, where we're going to change our power generation, for instance, but, you know, as you've said many times before, even that hasn't really been thought through as, as deeply as it really ought to be. The, the, the industrial side of it, you know, how you're going to make I mean, people talk a little bit about cement, but cement is just absolutely enormous. How are you going to do that? How are you going to get your copper without creating carbon? How are you going to get your lithium without carbon emissions along the way? That, yeah, and your that steel. Been... I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you can make steel without without coal, but it's a lot harder, and the majority of steel is still oh, I mean, you, coal, yeah, I mean, right? And even, even electric arc furnaces still use a fair bit of coal, and they use a bit of mm. gas as well. And so you, you're still you're still kind of emitting carbon. But the point is not, you know. The point is not to treat that as a kind of a reason for defeatism. It's just to say that the challenge is greater than people appreciate. I think that's the thing. A lot of people mm. would say, oh, God, it's impossible. It might not be impossible, <laughs> but it's just like it's definitely harder than you think. But it's like it's probably going to take us longer, long, longer than we think. I just like to be a really good example. Okay, is hydrogen. Um, this is something I think uh, yeah, I've got like, towards the end of the book. So, so green hydrogen, a lot of people hope will be the, the future because th- that will solve a lot of problems. If you have a lot of green hydrogen, um, you basically can run all of your wind turbines. They can take that power, turn it into hydrogen that you can then store under the ground, by the way, in salt caverns, which uh, comes back to salt. Anyway, in order to, to make this hydrogen, okay, which is going to be the solution to everything because it means you can just burn that hydrogen when the wind's not blowing, when the sun's not shining. It is your backup. It solves everything. You can put it into trucks. It's, theoretically, uh, and run them around instead of using diesel. In order to create that hydrogen, okay, the amount of energy you need is stupendous to run through those electrolyzers. And I'll give you an example. We at the moment in the UK, we've got a couple of fertilizer plants. Actually, neither of them are running right now because gas is so expensive. Um, To run one of those fertilizer plants, it's a kind of a medium-sized plant, doesn't create enough ammonia for the UK, at the moment, it takes natural gas in and fertilizer comes out. So it uses the natural gas as the process that creates that ammonia fertilizer. It's one of the most important processes in the modern world. Without these plants, we are all dead, or at least 50% of us are dead, because 50% of the world is alive today thanks to nitrogen fertilizer. We get 
from natural gas, almost entirely from natural gas, although in China they use coal still. Um, if you wanted to replace that fertilizer plant, as I say, pretty medium-sized fertilizer plant with green hydrogen, uh, which which with which you could then turn into ammonia because you can take that green hydrogen and turn it into ammonia, you would need the entire output of the biggest offshore wind farm in the world. So there's one off the UK called Doggerbank. There's another called Hornsey too. You would need their entire output, which was enough for about a million homes, just to power that plant and get green hydrogen and then it's green ammonia. So yeah, but then you'd also need a coal backup plant for when the wind wasn't blowing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's but you see the thing. It's the the scale. Yes, I do. That's one tiny. That is one tiny part of the picture that very few people have considered and never enters the the, the dialogue when we're talking about net zero and mm. just underlines that the scale of what we need to achieve is far greater. And and also what that underlines as well, Meryn, isn't it? Is is that energy density thing? You know, natural gas is incredibly energy dense compared with you know trying to to get the energy out of a wind turbine and electrolyze it and waste a lot of e- energy along the way and turn that into into hydrogen it is a very different world it's a very different challenge we're facing it's far greater than you possibly could have imagined but by the same token there is hope here because there's opportunities you know we need so many more innovations it's not just innovations you know to try and crack all of those different little kind of things that we've heard about whether it's um, kind of improving lithium-ion batteries. It's all along the industrial chain, all the way from the mine through to the products that we're using today. Yeah. It's through to petrochemicals. It's through to um, to ammonia. Like I say, there are so many different opportunities here. All of them pretty damn difficult. Um, but that, to me, spells an interesting, exciting time. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, no, that definitely exists. I'm, one of the things that I, I got the slight sense surprised you but a little when I was reading the, the chapter on oil is the extent to which fossil fuels still do fuel the world and that that number of 80, 80% of global energy coming from fossil fuels just doesn't go down. I mean, it reflects the fact that we're becoming more efficient at using all the fossil fuels that we do, but also that demand is constantly rising. So getting it below 80, 80%, so it feels like whatever we do, um, we're not really moving very fast in the end. And uh, possibly if policymakers made more effort to come to terms with that, they'd find it easier to make policy going forward. It's very easy to to just try and look for for enemies and to look for for, for villains and and to some extent you know f- fossil fuels in particular um, oil has been cast as one of the villains I mean coal obviously as well mm. um, but even so when you when you listen to to protesters like Just Stop Oil for instance in the UK and similar protesters around the world 
one of the things they frequently point to is is that the International Energy Agency has said that we don't necessarily need any new licenses for 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 oil exploration in the future. Even that same IEA um, framework, even that same forecast, still presumes that we're going to be consuming a lot of oil come 20, 2050. We're still going to be consuming a lot of oil come 2060 as well. We still rely on a lot of oil and a lot of gas because right now there are still things that we can't really do very well without them. You know, fertilizers being another, being a pretty good example. Well, fertilizer is, seems an example that, you know, so many people don't quite grasp. And one of the, um, I was looking at a photo of Just Stop Oil holding up something or the other the other day, and one of them was holding a big banner saying, you can't eat oil. Yeah, that's, right. we literally eat well, oil. Yeah, kind of do. That's what we literally, eat. Well, gas. gas <laughs> we're yeah, gas. we're not actually eating oil, but we are eating fossil yeah. fuels all the yeah. time, yeah. every day, all of yeah. us. I mean, I think. We're uh, munching them know. down. We're munching them down. And. And it's partly because it's it's the fertilizer, the most important bit, but also actually random things like I don't know if you've re- recently eaten salt and vinegar crisps. A lot of the time, the vinegar taste in crisps actually comes uh, from 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 petrochemicals. Did you know that? It's uh, no, you mean telling me the vinegar, the vinegar in salt and vinegar crisps isn't yeah. even vinegar? No, I mean it depends. Next, you'll be telling me that um, the, the chicken the flavor crisps are, are vegan, which <laughs> I think they are actually. Yeah, they possibly are. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, and and and. I think that we won't we won't do ourselves any favors by just demonizing kind of processes that we depend on to survive. I mean that's that's not to say we shouldn't be finding ways of diminishing our reliance of on them in the future, which we're doing and which we have plans to do. But everyone is after just easy answers. Everyone is after villains and heroes. Everyone is after silver bullets. And the way one of the reasons that I've been you know, kind of focused on this. And my background is slightly more in economics and, you know, other kind of reporting. But one of the reasons I've been drawn into this is that it felt like an area where too few people are talking about the nuance Mm. and complexity and the grey areas. It's too easy to just do kind of coverage of the, the green, you know, the energy transition and climate just in terms of villains and in terms of, you know, heroes. But that's not the way the world works. And, you know, I wanted to try to explain a little bit more about the basics of how the world works. I should say it wasn't the reason I started writing the book. The reason I started writing the book was I just wanted, I wanted to get, I wanted to understand how the products that I was using every day actually got into my hand. I wanted to understand the journey that a semiconductor or the steel frame of my phone had been in before it arrived uh, in my hands. But then along that way, you're like, well, there is this whole world and populated by amazing people, you know, engineers, scientists, physicists, manufacturers. Mm-hmm. making this stuff that we rely on every day. Um, whereas this, you know, commentarati um, are living in this entirely separate universe. And they're we just do. not engaged. You know, I was, um, I was looking for work experience for my daughter and um, everything that I could find that I looked at for her involved watching other people typing on computers. And, uh, you know, we had this exact conversation at home. How can we find you work experience that allows you to actually see stuff being made, stuff being done, Uh, stuff being dug out of the ground that allows you to see something other than people making spreadsheets and typing blogs? It's, it's, uh, you know, entry into that world if you're not in it. It's not necessarily the the easiest thing. Well, that's, I mean, actually, that's another kind of interesting point, which is that, that one of the wonders of the modern world, I suppose, is that we have managed to and this this is why we've managed to reduce the number of people it takes to get a lump of iron or copper or whatever it is out of the ground you know back back in the day you needed thousand people thousands of people working at these mines these days mm. so much of the process is automated that there's so few people are needed to get the stuff out of the ground and this is part of the explanation i kind of think of it as people are really sniffy about things like resource exploitation they're sniffy about it because it's not it's not like semiconductors. You don't have Moore's law when it comes to to copper or iron, do you? But actually, you do. You do because if you look at the price of copper, not just in terms of the, its kind of real value, of inflation adjusted value, but if you look at it in terms of the labour hours that are needed to go into it, you've had an extraordinary rise in productivity. In the mining sector, we've got so much better at getting stuff out of the ground thanks to, you know, big trucks, those 
They've allowed us to get so much of this stuff out of the ground and keep the price low to allow countries like China and India to start to industrialize. If it wasn't for this amazing productivity miracle, this undertold miracle, then you wouldn't have had the kind of progress we've had. You wouldn't have had the sheer number of people rising out of the poverty numbers that we had. So there's an amazing story here. But the corollary of that story is that there are fewer people than ever before working in the material world. Mm, mm. It's not just economics, obviously, is it? It's also then they've got the kind of national security question. You've got, do we want to be so reliant on China? Because in a sense, the kind of the shadow hero protagonist of this book is also China, because in every single one of these materials, it's basically pretty dominant. And so do you still want to be kind of so reliant? What do you want to do about that? We're all kind of aware of how reliant we are on on China for for stuff. Perhaps we're not even aware of just how great that is. Um, And so, again, whether it's green tech, whether it's plastics, um, whether it's copper, you know, almost half of all of the world's copper is refined in China. You You hear a lot of people talk about rare earth materials and how, look, it's terrible. China has a massive stranglehold, which they do. Copper, you know, the majority of the world's copper concentrate, which comes out of the mine, says so two types of that. You get the kind of some refined copper, but you also get copper concentrate, which is less refined. The majority of that gets shipped over to China from all over the world. So it's, you know, Indonesia, it's it's Chile, it's, it's Papua New Guinea, it's all of these places. And then it gets sent to China. And China is right at the heart of that supply chain now. And without an incredible increase in the amount of copper that we have, We are not going to fulfill anything. We're not going to be able to build enough wind turbines. We're not going to be able to make enough solar panels. We're not going to be able to make enough electric cars. And so... And we're not also going to be able to upgrade our grids to even begin to cope with the many intermittent sources of energy that come in, right? That's also a major part of it. Yeah, you need copper. You need a lot of aluminium for that as well, but particularly copper and copper and iron. Uh, You need electrical steel and copper for transformers. Transformers are one of the most exciting things in the world. No one talks about transformers. But these, you know, these boxes of copper and iron that sit somewhere and no one pays any attention to them and allow us to modulate between AC and DC and change the frequency are one of the most important things in the world. And for them, like you say, we need a a lot of copper. We need a lot of copper for that. And we need to upgrade all our grids. In the UK, massively, uh, in the US as well, across much of Europe. And there you run into another issue, okay, which is that the UK is a really good example of that. We need to we need to build a lot more pylons um, to get us the power that we need for all these electric cars and stuff, but also to get it from the places where we're generating that power right now. Yeah. What's fascinating about this material world filled with companies you've never heard of, you know, companies making polysilicon and companies making kind of random products that turn out to be the basis for Apple's entire business and, you know, Tesla's entire business. Anyway, one company that's kind of interesting to me is called Prismium. And they make, I'm not this, this is, I have no idea about what's going on in the corporate. This is not an investment, this, this is, is not, not investment called, advice, just to be clear. Yeah. Just fascinating because they make the cables that go under the sea. Okay. You know, you've probably yeah. seen some of the, the, the diagrams of these cables, copper in the middle, shielded with various different kind of bits of, of, of steel on the outside. And huge, um, right? The diameter of these things is whopping. They're, like, they're uh, really big. They're really big. You know. Fiber optics are smaller, but yeah, copper is uh, copper is, is thick, particularly for an undersea, f- for a high voltage undersea cable. And we're going to have to make so many more of it. We're going to have to lay so much cable in the coming years. And it's, it's interesting. There is this company that basically dominate both the manufacture of those cables and the laying of them. Um, which, again, you find quite a few of these these companies which dominate this world. You know, back to what I think is inspiring about this. There was that that was it Peter Thiel who said, you know, where's my flying car? You know, you gave me 160 characters or 240 characters, but where's my flying car? Yeah, totally fair. Yeah, well, it is. But here we are again. We're starting. We're, we are we are building stuff. It's beginning to happen. And in order to fulfill net zero, one of the inspiring and exciting things about it is it involves one of the biggest infrastructure uh, opportunities, challenges that we have that we've had for for many many decades, both in this country and elsewhere. We need to do it all over again. Mm. Again, you know, imagine if we did have a a global electricity grid, so you could have power from Morocco sent through to Europe 
uh, solar power from there. You can have wind power from from elsewhere. That that's quite an exciting story. But in order for it to happen, you need a lot more infrastructure. You need a lot more copper. You need a lot more of these cables to go down mm. under sea. Um, and again, right now it's quite hard to persuade anyone to open a new mine, a new copper mine. And so the question is whether whether people are going to be willing enough to actually do the mining that we need to do in order to to get to net zero. Well, this is one of the big conversations in the investment markets in that historically, everyone always says that the, the cure for high prices in the commodity market is high prices because prices go up and then you have more exploration, more mines opening, and that brings prices down. Uh, but of course, at the moment, you look around the world and prices go up and who's going to open a new mine in this environment? As you say, it's, it's incredibly difficult across the developed world. It's difficult in, in, in Chile. I've been reading a lot, a lot about that. There's a lot of concern there about the, the lithium in particular in Chile, right? So, you know, as, as prices go up, who's going to be the one who approves the new mines? It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult argument to make, as you say, because there isn't enough nuance in the debate, uh, whereas the argument really should be, if you want to move to an environmentally superior world, you've got to dig the mines first. I think that's it. And I think, I think the difficulty that the, the frustration I sometimes feel is when you talk to people who, who kind of very earnestly want us to, to, to reduce our carbon emissions and to fulfill all of these objectives. One of the things they also don't like is new mines. They don't, they don't like the mines and they don't want the extra mining. But it, there is, it is just implausible to see. And then the, the argument is then, oh, well, we should just consume less. And of course, that's true. You know, we, we in this country and elsewhere could certainly consume a bit less. You know, we could, seem a lot, could maybe consume a lot less. But even if we did that, it still wouldn't kind of make... The difference it still wouldn't, well, it wouldn't begin to move the dial globally. That's the key thing. What what we do here makes no difference globally. No, uh, and maybe we should just dig up all of Cornwall. I mean, there's quite a lot of copper and lithium in Cornwall, right? And there are talks about reopening mines. We could just dig the whole thing up. Yes, and that would be the environmentally friendly thing to do right now. Yeah, would be to dig up Cornwall. Yeah, totally. Because the, the grades there, some of the grades there are better than some of the grades you get in Chile. No joke. No joke. I mean, there's you know, but I don't know if anyone really wants to to dig up all those holiday homes but having been to a copper mine actually a few copper mines uh you need to create some pretty enormous holes in the ground in order to do yeah. it and so our, our you know willingness to do that does start to diminish when it's in nice pretty places um but that's, that's right the, we'd rather dig up somebody else's country wouldn't we totally and do it on the other side of the world in a place like the atacama desert where no one comes yeah. there and no one looks at it uh, but god those holes are mass you know they're canyons they are man-made canyons so one of the great productivity achievements of the, of the past few decades has been that we have managed to be even better at getting copper out of the ground. And as a result of that, all those those doom-laden predictions about how we were going to run out of materials. Remember, you know, this is not the first time that there's been these this dialogue. The Club of Rome, limits to growth, the 1970s was all about mm. how we were going to run out of stuff and we were going to destroy the world. That didn't happen. It didn't happen because we became so much better at getting ever more copper out of ever less promising ores. So the grades of the rock that we get out of the ground have become less promising. And the stuff that we pre previously would have said as junk now turns out to be legitimate copper ore. And the upshot is these holes have got even deeper. The question is whether we can have another one of those leaps again. If we can, mm. then maybe we can do kind of okay, get a bit, squeeze a bit more out of the existing mines. But I think even if you make all the most optimistic assumptions about that, you still need a shed load more copper mines. And right now the pipeline isn't promising enough on copper. Okay, well, that's optimistic realism is what I'm going to put you down as, Sorry. an optimistic realist. Yeah, it's exciting, <laughs> but it is exciting. It's exciting, and it's, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's energizing because we can make stuff. We haven't talked, and I just want to talk briefly about lithium. It's the last chapter in your book, and it's the metal, I think, or what, the substance, material, that when people run down the contents, mm, when they get to lithium, it'll be the first one they'll think to themselves, lithium? Is that really as important as oil and salt and sand? Um, but it is for the future, as opposed to historically. It is. Yeah? It is. Lithium is still incredibly incredibly important. Um, it is there at the heart of pretty much every battery chemistry you're talking about. Um, it's not the only thing. We need nickel, we need manganese, cobalt mm. in some places. But our ability to get enough lithium out of the ground is going to be one of the most telling uh, questions in whether we can achieve the other part of net zero, which is electrifying road transport and also you know, providing the lithium that we're, we're using for, for talking on devices like this. And 
the process of getting that lithium out of the ground, well, it's kind of fascinating. So I went out to Chile to to, to go to to the the lithium ponds where it is uh, where it is got from under the ground. So so the the Salar de Atacama is this kind of crazy place in the dry one of the driest deserts. Well, it's the driest desert in the world, um, where you can stand on this salt flat, and I did, and. A few meters beneath your feet. It's slightly terrifying because I, I was told later I shouldn't have sit on the salt flat. Because um, a few meters beneath your feet, there is this gigantic underground reservoir of brine, and it's just been sitting there. It's a strange kind of spooky thing. You think about water, it's you a- think about it being constantly in motion. But there's this yeah. underground well where lithium has been there for millions of years. And then we pump up the brine and then gradually precipitate away the other different salts in it. It's funny funny thing is when you know if you read the book in sequence there's there's a large section on salt and it turns yeah. out that the way we, we the way we make lithium at least from these from these um, brine deposits is basically the same as the way that we make salt. Uh, so you're evaporating it away in those large ponds over over a long period. And again the interesting thing in future is going to be whether we can get enough of it. Um right now there's far more lithium coming out of the ground in Australia because you can mine it as a hard rock and then ship it off to China to get refined. And then you can just get more out of the ground that way. Whereas in Chile, you're basically having to wait for the sun to do its work. So it evaporates it over mm-hmm. the course of, of, of a year or so. And so again, we fall back on our, our reliance on, on China and you know, it, it is, there's, there's all of the same issues here. The environmental question, you know, we're, we're using the, Deploying water in one of the driest regions of the world, uh, getting—it's a totally pristine ecosystem. We have no idea what we're doing to it, yet we're doing it. Um, and then the locals—the locals really don't like it at all. Um, I bet they don't. And that's happened. And that's—that's—we're only at the start of this for lithium. Mm. So mm. you know, that's 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 pretty kind of profound. I think. Um, I don't think we're going to have. I think we're going to be able to get enough of this stuff, but. What's interesting with lithium as opposed to the other kind of materials I look at in the book is it's just that it's new, you know. We've got hundreds of years of, well, thousands of years of experience of mining copper. Um, we only, you know, very recently decided that we like lithium for good reason. It's, it's about the best thing you can put in a battery. Um, but we don't have much experience of mining it. And how we do that and how we deal with a world which is less into mining now for this grand new beginning of, of, of exploitation uh, is is going to be a kind of an interesting one. I'm not sure where that's going to kind of end up. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully not digging up all of Cornwall, but uh, we'll see. We'll, well we see. I mean, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm up for digging, you know, parts of Cornwall because there's, there's, mm. there's loads of copper and wouldn't it be great if we could make copper? We've got lots of titanium, I think there's titanium, or tungsten, yeah. tungsten. We've yeah. got tungsten, tungsten in the UK. Yeah, we could live without Bodmin more, really, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Hate mail to the usual exhaust. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, carry on, it. Well, we do. We do. Have, we've got lithium in, in Cornwall, so um, there's mm. there, there's lithium. But the thing is, the UK has always, you know, relied on other people to get uh, to get its kind of metals. Um, I think the yeah. interesting one one interesting thing. Okay, so so when when we were in those early days of crossing the world with those cables, so the copper cables uh, that that were our first telecommunications network. The the boats the the ships that were doing that discovered when they were dragging their kind of uh, their sounders across the um, across the bottom of the Atlantic, they discovered these things called polymetallic nodules. Very. Oh, I was reading about those the other day. Well, this yeah, is this is this is the other frontier. So, polymetallic nodules. Actually, I think they found them in the Pacific because that's where most of them are. Are these little rocks that you find on the seabed, which are very dense, very very high grades of a lot of the metals that people quite want these days. So cobalt and copper and a few other things besides nickel, I think. Um, And one of the big questions in the coming years, again, is whether we are going to start mining under the sea. And so I have a whole chapter on this, because actually it turns out there there might be a whole lot more copper uh, in those deposits under under the sea than anyone has accounted for at the moment, even in the official numbers. And if we don't want to mine on land, 
are we going to be any more likely to want to mine under the sea? Probably not, because that's, that's an even more pristine ecosystem. But not only that, that's an ecosystem that we don't know nearly as much about yet. I mean, at least if we're mining on land, we, we know what we're doing. We know what we're destroying as we go. We understand these ecosystems relatively yeah. well, whereas on the true. ocean bottom, we don't understand really anything about those no. ecosystems, do no. we? Well, we only we... just discovered these nodules. We have no idea what would happen if we went and scraped them up off the seabed. Totally, totally, and uh, I mean, like we, I, I'd say the main ex- one exception to that is just the things like the salt, the Salar de Atacama in, in Chile, where we really don't know much about how that how that really functions. Yeah. But yeah. under the sea, under the sea, so totally pristine. We know so little about it. What we do know is that whenever we go into a new habitat and plunder it, uh, there we are terrible, there are consequences, um, and yet that is where a lot of people are racing towards right now. I mean, I, I think it's probably less likely. I think what's mo- much more likely is that we, we just get better at mining the stuff from terrestrial mines. But even so, the hunger for minerals is so great now that people are looking in all sorts of places to find this stuff. And the reluctance amongst many people on, on land to have mining near them is such that, you know, if, if, if you're not going to let them mine on land, then maybe you're going to find the path of least resistance. And right now, that is actually a path of least resistance because, you know, you've got places like the International Seabed Authority, uh, which are in the process of laying down the rules to allow deep sea mining. We don't know that's an ongoing conversation right now, but it's within a kind of regulatory body, which no one's ever heard of, frankly. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's very little oversight. I went there. I went to Jamaica, where the International Seabed Authority is based. They're the guys, you know, who decide who is allowed to mine on the seabed. And it's this sleepy place on the on the seafront in Kingston. It's rather delightful, but it feels like a kind of go- you're going into a time capsule. It's an old 1970s Bond set uh, from like the Roger Moore era. They still got the kind of phone booths with the 1970s era phones that you could kind of pick up and and still work functioning. That is the front line for deep sea mining right now. And no one is quite sure what they're going to come up with right now. So we are in a really interesting moment where we're testing our kind of limits of reluctance or willingness as to how much exploitation we're going to be doing. Ed, last question, because I've had you for too long and I must let you go. But how long before we can mine all these minerals in space and we can start worrying about all these conversations? Well, I mean, that's that, <laughs> even less likely than under the sea, I think. Even less likely. Although I suppose you don't have to worry about the kind of ecosystem thing. But the, the, the Well, we think we don't. We have no idea either, do exactly. we? Exactly. Maybe that's, yeah, I know. <laughs> we blithely go out there and accidentally discover life and then destroy it. The thing I definitely kind of learned in, in the process of, of, of kind of... Un- you know, exploring more about mining and and not just mining, but the transformations we do to, to turn one thing into another is that, you know, in the end, you do need to be able to do it in a way that isn't going to bankrupt everyone. Mm. Because part of human progress is about making these things cheaper, you know, making copper cheaper, making concrete cheaper so that you can concrete in places. And, you know, lives are saved thanks to concrete because concrete floors in a, in a, uh, in a house rather than mud floors are just far better for for the inhabitants so our ability to get this stuff at scale and at reasonable price is everything right now we in the the developed world have about a lot of people kind of look at development statistics and they focus on gdp per capita my favorite is steel per capita so if you look at the amount of steel that we have per head um in most developed economies like the uk and the us it's kind of about 15 tons per capita in China, it's about seven, eight tons per capita. And bear in mind that when we're talking about the steel per capita, what does that mean? That means the steel around you in your life. It means your car. Most of your car is still made from steel, even though bits and pieces are made from aluminium. Still steel. It's the building that you're, you know, you're probably in right now. It's the infrastructure, the high-speed rail, uh, the rails themselves, the trains. It's the machines that make the things that you use because everything... If it's not made of steel, it's made with steel. So you need a hell of a lot of steel to have a developed economy, to have hospitals, to have infrastructure, to have the trappings that we all feel we deserve. Mm -hmm. You need those 15 tons of steel per capita. Okay, and we're more or less flat at 15 tons. It's not going up. So that's kind of something. We're not increasing our consumption per capita of steel. 
But in the developing world and in the emerging economies, you know, that amount of steel per capita is more like, well, I, I said in middle income, it's more like kind of seven, six, six tons. In, in parts of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, it's one ton or less. Mm. And yeah. if those economies are going to develop and become middle and then developing, develops economies, middle income and then high income economies, they will need more steel. Yeah. Uh, and infrastructure, if you're going to build out kind of highways, you need steel, you need steel reinforcement for them. If you're going to build out kind of rail, if you're going to build hospitals, you need steel. If you're going to build schools, you need steel. And making steel is massively carbon intensive, but it's also something we do at scale. So, you know, back to your question. Yeah, maybe at the margin, there might be some mining of, of asteroids for, for certain rare materials. But what really matters fundamentally is being able to get this supposedly basic stuff and turn it into the life-saving and life-sustaining apparatus that is around all of us all the time. Mm. And mm. we need to do more of it. And right now that's massively carbon intensive. But who, you know, who are we to say to people in sub-Saharan Africa that you need to be constraining your natural demand for extra things you know for your hospitals. natural demand for your natural demand for higher living standards higher living to say standards. that they shouldn't have them exactly yeah. and that's reflected in the amount of steel that we're all consuming it's not you know so so and to consume to make steel is really carbon intensive right now and and yeah. if, if you're going to try and do it in a less carbon intensive way it is far more expensive and so who are we again to say you're going to have to spend more for your steel than, than we would have to spend or that we had to spend when we were developing those are knotty issues. They're knotty, mm. tricky mm. issues with no straightforward answer, which is why it's interesting. But unfortunately, you know, yeah. a lot of people would much rather think in just terms of easy questions, easy answers, black and white, heroes and villains. It's not the way the world works. Certainly not the kind of pragmatic material world that I'm trying to describe. That you have described very well. Ed, I think we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your nuanced optimism. And as I say, everybody, please go out and buy Ed's book. It will change the way you look at so many things. And uh, you probably need the way you look at so many things changed just a little bit. Ed, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Samasadi and Mohammed Farouk. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Ed Conway and to John Stefik. And of course, our weekly reminder, do sign up to John Saley newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. And do not forget to buy Ed's book. It's really very good. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.